Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello and welcome to the Back Half, the New Statesman's culture podcast. I'm Tom Gatti, I'm the culture editor of the New Statesman. I'm Kate Mossman, I'm the arts editor. Frankly, that's the same thing, isn't it? I, I don't know what you mean, it's completely different. Why? It just is. Okay. We right. call ourselves the Back Half because I suppose individually we are a back quarter. Together we are the Back Half. We work on the Back Half of the magazine, which is where all the books and arts and culture and non-political or at least semi-political parts of the magazine live and that's the stuff we discuss on this podcast and what do we have this week we have the solo albums by the brothers gallagher we also have the rollicking life of modigliani and we have the i don't know what number how many of these we've done now but probably about the fifth in our in our non-anniversary series the unimportant cultural event and we've just spent the last half an hour fiddling with our levels <laughs> so if you so, hear a buzz it's not our fault it's not our fault okay So, Kate, on 24th of November, Noel Gallagher, or should I say Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds, mm. I probably should say mm. that, releases his new album, Who Built the Moon? Is it High Flying with an apostrophe? I think it is High Flying, ah. named after a Jefferson Airplane song. Yeah, so he was doing the washing up. And he thought, my band should be called Noel Gallagher's something. Which is, an, if you think about it, that is an amazing it's revelation. An inspiration, yeah. yeah. The album by Liam is not by the BDI, is it? It's just by Liam. It's just by Liam Gallagher. It's his, it's his first solo album. It came out on 6th of October. So they're within two months of each other. So how deliberate that is, mm. I don't know. But you can't help recalling the, um, the glorious days of 1995 when um, Blur and Oasis shifted well i think it was blur who shifted their single release of country house a few weeks back just to just to go neck and neck with mm. with oasis i was thinking the currency of these long-running celebrity feuds is only going to get bigger in an age where reviews don't matter anymore you know critics don't matter anymore the best person to promote liam's album is noel by saying it's shit absolutely what more can you want yeah and yeah. what what did he say in fact he didn't he make some comment about adele noel's brilliant line on liam's record was that it sounded like adele shouting into a bucket <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I saw a, a clip of Liam interviewed and he was talking about Noel's record. And he's like, yeah, I've heard a bit of it. You know, it's very U2-y if you like that kind of thing. He's trying something new. Can't wait for him to play it live. Good luck to him. And then someone picks up a, a flyer with David Hasselhoff on it and he goes, oh, David Hasselhoff, he's more psychedelic than our kid. <laughs> um, but they, um, Liam has um, painted himself very much as the no-nonsense, back-to-basics, this is my kind of straight comeback. Well, it's got All a great title, songs, hasn't it? It's called As You Were. As You Were. Which is a great title compared to Building the Moon, which is like a mighty <laughs> bush moon, type yeah. title. I mean, I'd, just, I'd love to know a bit more about the um, orchestration of these kind of brotherly rivalries, because, yes, sure, they 
they hate each other and mm. that will go back to Freudian moments before their collective memory. Mm. But it's also absolutely vital to their continued health as musicians. And I remember I was interviewing Ray Davis a few months ago and everyone knows that Ray and Dave Davis hate each other and stuff. But, I mean, he told me he'd been in the pub with him before Christmas. They do meet up, you know. But then after we published the Ray Davis piece, I got an email immediately from Dave correcting me on things that Ray had said, which is an interesting insight. It's not a fake feud. It's yeah. real. But it they need it. And it's yeah. like another cross to bear along with everything else, yeah. the sort of celebrity feud, I think. Well, one of my favorite Oasis songs is acquiesce and that that's the one that's got that chorus we need each other we believe in in one another and that's never gone away whether it's kind of you know when they were actually a creative partnership or now in their sort of you know um do you remember the narrative of uh, bush and bin laden was you know they need they need <laughs> they need each Coming other to to South Park. To <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think saddam hussein <laughs> and the devil in bed yeah <laughs> One of the one of the people who sheds most light on this is their mother in that documentary, Supersonic. It's ever so sweet. She says things only a mother could say, like, I'm glad that Liam and Noel were in a band together. I wouldn't have wanted them to be in it separately, but it all just happened too fast. And she said that um, she idolised Noel and Paul when they were little kids. Mm. So they were beautiful. Mm. And then along came Liam five years later. And that is that is it. Isn't that everything in a nutshell here? This is this is the person who, this extrovert, like Noel Gallagher once um, compared himself to a cat and Liam to a dog. Mm. The dog wants to go out and play ball, play ball all the time. The cat just wants to be a moody bastard. And even the way that they that they formed, that Noel was the one who was writing songs in his bedroom from 15, goes on tour with the Inspiral Carpets, calls up to say hello to his mum on a Sunday, and she goes, oh, your brother's in a band, by the way. <laughs> And he goes along to see the jam and Liam goes, you can join if you want. It's like he always gets there first. Yeah. Everything comes easy. Yeah. The dynamic hasn't changed that much, has it? And watching this clip of Liam being interviewed, you know, he still is the moody bugger in the cagoule. I should say, actually, you, you're dressed very appropriately yeah, for, I have my parka. for this chat because you, you have your parka. You're wearing it indoors. Yeah. It's possibly a bit too... Technicolor for it's got a giant rainbow hood, but the rest of it is <laughs> circa nineteen. But he still sits there in a zipped-up cagoule with his arms crossed. Except you can tell he's in, he's enjoy. I mean, he was enjoying it at the time, but he's really enjoying it this time. Mm. But let's talk about the Noel Gallagher record because I think this might be a really bad record. Yeah. I mean, I know he's he's, he's a slightly frightening man, so I don't want to I don't want to enrage him. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say really. I mean. <laughs> so it's it, the opening two songs on this record. Uh, I mean, I had to sort of after that, I had to turn turn it off and have a little bit of a bit of a break just to collect my thoughts and, and hope that it improved. So it starts with this. Um, it's produced by David Holmes, who um, I used to listen to a lot of his music in the nineties. He did a lot of soundtracks, and he did an album which is one of my favourite album titles called this film's crap let's slash the seats that was his first <laughs> record but he's sort of a, he's sort of an electronic producer lots of sampling so for this one he said to Noel you know you're not allowed to write any songs we're just gonna build up layers of samples and right. and you know that is a kind of thing that sort of guitar driven singer-songwriters do after mm. a while and sometimes it really pays off and I think in this case it, it mm. really really hasn't it explains a lot to me because I've been trying to work out what it is about the songs that's just so weird. And it, it's something about the structuring of them mm. and the production. They don't really build up. 
they don't really have changes in dynamics or space and texture. They just kind of hit the ground running and they just are. They're just like these walls of sound. Yeah. And Noel is kind of lost in the mix. Isn't yeah. he? Sometimes he's in a chorus of ladies. Sometimes he's double tracked and sometimes he's barely there at all. Yeah. And he's still throwing out lines like, you know, I don't know. I'm just paraphrasing, but, you know, you've got to get yourself together. Yeah. And that's as far as it gets. Yeah. So it's got this very bombastic yeah. kind of tone. It's building the moon, and yet it's sort of n- nothing as well. The first track is called um, Fort Knox, and it's kind of a good. The first two tracks are a good demonstration of what's wrong with the record. The first track is this sort of. It sounds like a sort of rejected remix of a Primal Scream song, uh, you know, from, from mm. the late 90s. Uh, it's got this sort of breakbeat, choral, ladies singing. What's he saying? Um, yeah, again, it's one of these phrases, keep on holding on or something. And then like an alarm clock um, yeah. go, going off in the, in the background. And um, it made me slightly yearn for, um, do you remember Setting Sun, mm. the track he did with the Chemical Brothers? Mm. Brilliant piece of like really genuinely abrasive kind of modern pop music that forced um, Chris Evans to take it off when he first played it on The Breakfast Show because he thought it was too too noisy for the for the breakfast show but this is just it's not it's not edgy it just it just sounds a bit lame and then let's actually hear a little bit of the second song holy mountain which is the lead single off the album So that's a slightly grim, glam rock, stomping sound, kind of, you know, what's it? I like the way you push and shove. Again, weirdly, weirdly faceless. There's quite a lot of um, uh, super furry animals, I felt, in this. Yeah. Not in this song, but in, in the record generally, in that kind of, sort of slightly empty psych rock sound. But it does sound like a big backing track, which is funny. It sounds like it's not quite there. It hasn't quite been finished. And maybe that does come back to the way that it was made. This track, Holy Mountain, that tin whistle in the chorus is from a kind of classic David Holmes, some really obscure bubblegum pop record that he picked up and sampled this tin whistle and said, Noel, let's make a record from this tin whistle sample. And <laughs> Noel says he thinks it's one of the best things he's ever done. And it just, it's, to me, it sounds like a cross between, you know, Brian Ferry, Let's Stick Together and She Bangs by Ricky Martin. It's, it's it's just it's just it's just a mess. It has twenty three musicians on it. This record, as well as the band. Well, this is what he's... Paul Weller plays the organ. Yeah, this is a real thing we were talking about with the Foo Fighters record as well. Why is Paul Weller playing the organ? And, and uh, Johnny Marr's playing the harmonica, the gobbyon. <laughs> Johnny Marr like, and the gobbyon. Is it Paul McCartney playing the drums on the Foo Fighters? Yeah, record? there's is one that, track yeah. where he plays some this drums. Is obviously, a real genuine thing to get get people into. Yeah, do and, what and, they it, and the, well. the magic thing is that in all the, and there've been a few of these in recent years. You can't actually hear these guests, and you wouldn't know they were there no. unless you're told. Noel's diss of of Liam's record was, uh, I'm not sure I can be asked formulating an opinion on a record that's written by an army of songwriters so that was the biggest diss you know I'm the songwriter among these two of us we've known that since we were kids you can't even write songs and you've had to go and get some some hired hands who of course are Greg Kirsten and Michael I don't know how to pronounce his name Michael Tiger T-I-G-H-E anyway it's a slightly harsh thing to say about Liam's record because I think that Kirsten only co-wrote two tracks on it I think there are some other 
co-writers on there. there. Are, There's a yeah. dude called Andrew Wyatt. Do you know him? Um, um, American guy. He gets a writing credit on, on a few of the tracks. And then For What It's Worth is written by a guy out of Cherry Ghost. Oh, I like him. I, again, is I, it the guy? Is it Cherry the Ghost? Yeah, Cherry the Cherry Ghost. Ghost. Yeah, the, the cherriest of ghosts. <laughs> but Kirsten, of course, is the, the golden boy, um, particularly of this year. So he did um, Foo Fighters record. He did the Beck record. He's done this. His thumbprint is he tends to co-write one song that sounds like the Beatles and put it on your album. But he's a brilliant producer. So he creates a lot of textual differences and light and sound and space mm. and to me at least that's what you get on Liam's record that you don't get on Noel's. Yeah it's not totally stripped back it's still quite produced but you get the space that you need in order to to hear the songs. I think reference points that Liam's been throwing around are things like um, Street Fighting Man by The Stones and Cold Turkey by John Lennon and while I don't think anything on it has that kind of edge or honesty it's still a really strong collection of songs and yeah i don't i don't care if he got co-writers in that's that's pretty sensible <laughs> it does highlight the gallagher turn of phrase though doesn't it <laughs> this well, I've, I've got a little quiz for you okay <laughs> i was going to give you give you a little quiz tom which okay. is i'm going to read out some lyrics from okay. um these two albums and you have to identify whether they are written by brother liam or brother noel okay hit me don't look at my paper number one it's a long way down when you're the wrong way round. Is that Liam or Noel? Is it Liam? Yes. 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 Liam from Greedy Soul on Greedy this album. Soul. Do you know what Greedy Soul, there's a weird, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a weird strain of sort of um, satanic imagery in this record. Yes. Crucifixes and 666. She's got a 666. I got my crucifix. She's got a spinning head like the Ungrateful Dead. <laughs> and then later on, there's another, uh, I'm sure there's another... Um, I'll find it later, but there's another sort of weird d demonic piece of imagery. I have to uh, later on. confess that when I was compiling this quiz for you, I found it trickier to find bad lyrics in Liam's record. Okay. So well, I was, I was struggling, which was kind of unfair. I should have just taken a random lyric sample and it would have been probably quite good. Who wrote this? Noel or Liam? Put your money where your mouth is. You know where to draw the line. Oh, I know this one. That's Noel. Yes. Yeah. Do you remember the song? No. She taught me to fly. Yes, that's got that kind of you two Coldplay shimmering thing. Mm. Do you know what I mean when I say the shimmering <laughs> the thing? The shimmering thing. Yeah, when the chorus comes the in, of they just press a button and it goes shimmer, shimmer, shimmer. How about this one? Okay. You've never been alone before and the wolf is at the door. Oh, um, that's, I think that's Liam. Yes. Yeah, that's, is that his, um, I don't know the name, but is that his, there's a sort of midlife song. Is that Paper Crown? It's is Paper it, Crown, is Paper Crown. Okay. which is the one that to me sounds like Band on the Run, Out of Wings. Yeah, particularly that beginning part <laughs> of, of Band wings. on the Run, yeah. Oh yeah, that, and that's the song that mentions the Hounds of Hell, ah, which is my other yeah, demonic image. Yeah, other demonic. Yeah, and it. your final one, okay. um, you've got to get yourself together. Oh well, that's easy, that's not. <laughs> From Fort Knox. <laughs> it's out on the 24th of November, and I believe that iTunes have made a whole film about the making of it as well. About? The making of uh, Building the Moon. The building the of building the moon. The building of, of They've made who a built movie. the moon. Yeah. Wow, incredible. Yeah. Meta. So enjoy. Yes, enjoy. Before we go, Kate, um, I think we should just play a little bit of For What It's Worth by Liam Gallagher. It's hard to find a sunset in the eye of a storm But I'm a dreamer by design And I know in time We'll put this
You see, I quite like that. It is a bit of a mum pleaser. Um, <laughs> it's not a million miles away from back for good or something like that. Um, I'm sure he would relish that comparison. But it's a decent song. And that's the one co-written with the Cherry Ghost. With the Cherry Ghost. One of my other favourites on the record, uh, Chinatown, which... Um, you know, you were just saying has a lovely uh, kinksy feel to it. Yeah, yeah. Both of both of these dudes seem to sound really good when all the music's taken back and it's just them and an acoustic yeah. guitar. And that's sort of it. I suppose it goes back to Wonderwall and all that mm. kind of stuff. But it 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 never doesn't work when they do that. Maybe and they a- just need to do more of that. And actually, one of the nicest songs on the Null record is the bonus track. Yeah, the bo- which that's is, what I thought. Uh, yeah, just recorded in a radio studio somewhere. Dead in the water. Yeah, and it's it's just a really yeah. great classic ballad. I think. Noel will look back on this as an interesting but possibly failed experiment. Just before we go, did you watch the clip of Liam Gallagher making his own cup of tea no. a few weeks ago? No, what, what happened? This went viral on the internet. It was part of some little documentary and he was being interviewed backstage somewhere making a cup of tea. Uh, to be fair, I don't think he was actually making it from start to finish. I think he was just completing the process. And he was musing about how in the 90s, you'd have had four people making your cup of tea for you. And that this was what was wrong with the, with the music <laughs> industry now. Is there's no money in it. So as there are no real rock stars left because they all have to make their own cup of tea. He's like, um, oh, you'd have this little geezer doing the kettle, our kid, some little fucker over there doing that, <laughs> some little idiot over there doing that. And this is the guy who said that to his mum that he only wanted to be in a band so that he could afford to buy himself some new clothes. <laughs> it, what, what sort of really strikes me just thinking about Oasis with a bit of hindsight is that it took two and a half years, that's all, to get from complete obscurity where no mm. one said, you know, no one even wrote about us to say we were shit mm. to playing Nebworth to mm. a quarter of a million people. Two and a half years. I mean, that is... that. It doesn't happen now, does it? So it is kind of, it's amazing to think that that happened to them and that they're still kind of clinging on. Mm, amazing trajectory. So Who Built the Moon by Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds is out on 24th of November. As You Were by Liam Gallagher is out now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. So in this week's issue of the New Statesman, our art critic, Michael Prodger, has done a kind of, I suppose, a preview of a big Modigliani show that's coming to the Tate. I think it opens next Friday. And he's looked really at the life and loves of this guy who I, for one, had no idea was so good looking. Really, really hot. I mean, it was like John Cocteau was was asked about his looks and he said, was he handsome? No, he was something better. I did look him up and he does have a weird magnetic quality to him, doesn't he? It's like those, um, 
you know those pictures of young Stalin that were going around yes. like Stalin or hipster? Yes, like, it's exactly like that. Yeah. It's like a cross between a young Ted Hughes and David Bailey. Mm. And these pictures were taken in about maybe 1920. And he, he looks, died in 1920. Oh, so no, yeah, okay, yeah. so it would be even, yeah. even earlier than that. Yeah. And he's wearing this kind of chenille v-neck and he's sort of like posing a little bit with this amazing... So I suppose he looks like sort of something from the 50s and 60s rather mm. from... But, um, his life was... I just had no idea about how, how ridiculously dramatic his life was. He, he died of uh, tubercular meningitis, which kind of developed from tuberculosis that he got at the age of 16. He exacerbated it with drugs and drink and alcohol. And he was found near close to death uh, in bed, um, clinging to the body of his mistress, who was still alive at that point, who, after he died, threw herself out the window of the flat two days later, pregnant with their second child. And because he was Jewish, and the family wouldn't let them be buried together, and they weren't put together in the same grave until 1928. He had an incredible sort of, uh, sort of very, very dramatic love life. There was a, another lover of his, a, a journalist, Beatrice Hastings, who left a memorable sketch of their first encounter. And she said, he was a complex character, a swine and a pearl. I met him in 1914 at a cremery. <laughs> Sat opposite him, hashish and brandy. Not at all impressed. Didn't know who he was. He looked ugly, ferocious and greedy. Met him again at the Café Rotonde. He shaved and was charming. He raised his cap with a pretty gesture, blushed and asked me to come and see his work. And I went. She what? committed suicide later by gassing herself alongside her pet mouse. God, this sort of whole period is just littered with corpses, isn't it? <laughs> what the piece is also brilliant at is just evoking that world of, of Paris. He, he came to Paris in 1906 and... By 1920, he was dead. So uh, he was mid he was 35, and Paris transformed him into this kind of louche, adventurous character. He was he was rather straight laced before that, but it also connected him with all these artists working there: Picasso, Matisse, and this was a time where in 1906, uh, no, 1907, Picasso had painted uh, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, which is that very famous painting that sort of marks year zero for Cubism of the um, of the, the women with the kind of very, very angular heads. And you can see a real relationship between that and Modigliani's work, which is marked by these strange ovoid heads is his kind of his key, yeah. his, his key um, signature. And it's striking when you look at them together that they really do all share this characteristic combined with a with an odd emptiness to the eyes. He said, when I know your soul, I will paint your eyes. As in never. As in never, <laughs> which is a really good get out line if you just can't do eyes. You can't do eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but what Michael writes about here is that it's amazing really how through these sort of geometric lines, he's able to bring out his subject's individuality without, you know, going to the, the windows of the soul. Mm. Um, yeah, it's like, oh, that's his manager. Oh, that's his mistress. Yeah. Well, it's the same face. It's yeah. the same effect. Yeah, but, but they do have something, yeah. they do have something special. And, and um, part of that interest in those, those shapes, as with Picasso, comes from African art. He was obsessed with African art. And um, again, this is the time where Matisse was picking up little African sculptures and showing them to Picasso in Gertrude Stein's living room. <laughs> and um, they were kind of obsessing over, over these forms for the very first time. Um, and um, that that oval shape is something you see again and again mm. in African masks. And, and he did, for, for a while he went into sculpture, 
And Michael talks about how he used to steal railway sleepers and raid yeah. building sites yeah. at night for the materials. And he kind of messed about with sculpture for a few years and then gave up. But apparently that sort of fixed this this style, what we come to know. And of course, then he dies at 35. So who knows what he would have gone on to do? He might have had a million different periods like Picasso, or he may have just been fixed. He may not have been that, you know, varied in his style at all. Mm. Yeah, no, Didn't you have like a some oh, game yeah. you used to Modigliani yeah, game? So, so for me, for me, Modigliani will always be inextricably linked with um, rainy days and summer holidays, where we had this board game called Modigliani, the art market game, <laughs> uh, and. Um, it's a board game where you build up a collection of a specific period. <laughs> it comes with high-quality reproduction cards <laughs> and uh, a little wooden gavel. Um, and um, you, I'm, I expect you can only find it on eBay these, these days. Um, I'm sure there are hardcore board gamers who, who know about it. And for some reason, I mean, they could have named the, named the game after any artist, but obviously the guy or woman, whoever made the game, really liked Modigliani, so that's who it was named. So it wasn't just about his work. No, no, no. It was was everyone. It was, um, you could collect 17th, 18th, 19th century, Impressionism, modern, but it came with a little booklet about Modigliani. And and the portrait of Jeanne Hebuterne, which, uh, who was his, the, the one who killed herself after he died, when I saw that earlier today, that instantly brought this board game. So it was wow. on, the, on the box of this board game. Was it difficult so to play? It was more interesting than Monopoly in that you, you did have to like bluff through. You had proper auctions. So you could wow. like try and raise the price. Yeah. I think our family would have just not understood that. Our favourite game at Christmas was something called Monster Mash, which was just a kind of basic Ludo style board and some Play-Doh. And you made a, a rude shape out of your lump and you moved, you rolled a dice, and you moved it around. If you happened to land on someone else's monster, you just incorporated their form into yours and became larger and larger and larger. So you become like this huge tree staggering around the thing. And a few years ago, we um, replaced the monster heads with photographs of our parents. So it's actually their dead-eyed faces <laughs> stomping around our board, and it still gets brought out at Christmas. Well, that's uh, but that sounds very imaginative in a kind of... Uh primitivist way while, while I was bidding on uh, works of the Impressionists. You were. I was creating giant penises from Play-Doh. <laughs> so uh, Modigliani uh, opens at Tate Modern on uh, 23rd of November and you've got plenty of time to see it because it is there till the 2nd of April next year. Now it's time for the non-aversary, a non-significant anniversary of a non-significant cultural event. Actually, arguably, this was sort of significant. It's Child's Play, the film, released in November 1988, so 29 years ago this month. 29 years. Most people know what Child's Play is, but if you don't, the basic premise was a soul of a, of a serial killer had been trapped inside a doll which was sold to a poor single mum by a kind of peddler figure. You know how in American films of the 1980s there was a kind of a magical tramp in them and it sort of hung out next to braziers under bridges in the oh, cold yeah, yeah. and it did magic things and it was kind of, kind of got its way into this film as well and so this, this dude sells this uh, knockoff doll which has um, the evil soul of Brad Dourif in it who is um, Grima Wormtongue out of Lord of the Rings and Doc Cochran from Deadwood and it's basically just a very angry serial killer who yells and swears all the time and, and the doll does nasty things but um, there were many many more Child's Play films there was Child's Play 2 Child's Play 3 Bride of Chucky Seed of Chucky Curse of Chucky and this year The Cult of Chucky 
This year? Mm, still going. Did you see? You saw Child's Play 2, didn't you? I think I saw Child's Play 2 and it was at a... When I say saw, it was at a friend's birthday party, I think. And I think I kind of watched it out of the corner of my eye while doing something else because I absolutely hated... Yeah, I mean that's the one set in the army camp isn't it where it follows him to school or something I was up for like you know I liked um, films like Arn Eagle and stuff which were like <laughs> there were, weirdly I liked American Air Force based films at that time oh that was your thing <laughs> yeah um, but I wasn't I wasn't into horror films and I was kind of I was scared of the idea of them mm. um, but even just on on those few minutes I've got a very very clear idea of this Chucky doll in my head it's kind of it's one of those visually very very effective horror images isn't it mm. they, that somehow whoever designed that got it really right mm. it's very I wonder if it came from an urban legend because I remember at school you know when you tell these spooky stories about you mm. know the phone rings and the murderers in the house and yeah. all this kind of thing one of the stories was um, about a talking doll mm. and it's talking and the kid picks it up and the batteries fall out of the box and that actually comes from child play maybe I don't know whether it was like chicken and egg maybe yeah. they took that spooky idea but um, yeah, but yeah the, what was interesting to me is I found out just now that there was a huge crowd of protesters outside the MGM building calling for a ban on it because they thought it was going to incite violence in children and as we know it did that was I wouldn't have seen that in it at all. I thought it would scare children, but I wouldn't think it would make children violent. Yeah, ninety two and ninety three. I guess a few mm. years later, there were two. There were two cases, most famously the Bulger case, where it came up. I'm sure it probably was based on on weird urban legends that were floating around. And um, weirdly, for the second time in this podcast, the Cabbage Patch Kids comes up because <laughs> um, we talked about the Garbage Pail Kids uh, on our anniversary a few weeks ago. And I think Chucky also plays on sort of crazes at that time in America for these particular kind of cute dolls. Yeah. And just try and turn it as, as far in the opposite direction as you can. There's a great scene at the end out. of one of them where he just gets uh, mashed up in a factory. I think the factory that created him he goes back to or something like that. And he just becomes a, a lump of loads and loads of different doll arms just squashed together like a genetic accident. And that's one of the most disgusting scenes I've ever seen in a film. So who's watching... You said there's a film that came out this year. Is it, Which I've just it, found out about Cult of Chucky. But is that people who... Do you think it's people our age who watched it at the time? Or do you think that a younger horror fans are i think it's the kind of thing you you know when you have a horror movie night you probably get five different movies right. to watch and it might be the one that you watch at three o'clock in the morning when you're very stoned and you're falling asleep right so nobody's i don't think anyone's paying any massive attention to it but it's nice to, that it's still being made it's very nice Thank you for downloading the Back Half podcast. We've been Tom Gatti and Kate Mossman. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at Tom underscore Gatti or at NS underscore podcasts. Not with me. Not with Kate. She's not on Twitter. Low profile. Low profile to no profile. <laughs> but high, prof high profile. She combines high profile and no profile. <laughs> it's very, very confusing, Kate's status. I want to know if anyone else played Modigliani and I know Kate wants to know if anyone else played Monster Mash Monster Mash and did so anybody else make shapes or did you just keep it simple and have a blob these are questions that we need answers to so um, please get in touch also uh, suggest a non-aversary for us because it's 
frankly exhausting coming up with them every week. It's really hard. We don't know how to start. We just put in a, a, a month into Google and then we work backwards from the month and it takes days. <laughs> we wade through the internet <laughs> for literally days. Or we pick a thing that we hope happened in the month and we look it up and it didn't. <laughs> Which is not the best way of doing it. Mathematically, it's not going to get you anywhere. We will now, of course, as ever, be playing you out with the the beautiful psychedelic strains of Pistol Jazz with their song Godspeed. Godspeed. 